I know what you're thinking. Best band name ever. And you know what? Maybe when I start my Greek death metal band, I will call it Plato and the Death Ponies. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Out podcast, and welcome to part one of the Minor Prophet series. Or at least I think it's going to be a series. Today we're contrasting the book of Zechariah with book one of the laws by Plato. And we're going to be pulling in some passages from Revelation, which are actually echoing what was going on first in Zechariah. And we're going to get a little clarification from the book of Isaiah right up front. Um, this one came together by sheer coincidence. I was getting a little bored listening to podcasts and music at work, so I thought, you know what, I should listen to something a little better. I should listen to the Bible. Maybe I'll hit some of Plato's dialogue. So I was listening to the book of Zechariah, and I was listening to book one of the laws at the same time. And I thought, wow, these two just fit hand in glove. I should do an episode, and that'd be perfect for my new Minor Prophets series. So the first thing we need to talk about is how the laws and how Zechariah begin. And in order to understand how they are connected, we need a little piece that actually comes from a prophecy from Isaiah 55. So I'll read you that, and we'll explain a little bit about the uh, symbolism which he's, he's bringing forth, and then we'll dive into the text. We are hitting hard Plato's laws. We're going to be reading a lot of that, so be prepared. So first, this is Isaiah 55, 12, and 13. He says, You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and his love. Now, what this points to, and we'll be reading more of this passage, are a bunch of really cool things which do happen here in the New Covenant. Um, we get a little bit of Trinitarian stuff. We get some incarnational things going on in this passage. And this is what's supposed to happen when the Messiah comes. And of course it did. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, but I've, I've seen thorns. I've been in the woods, Jake. What are you talking about? And where are these myrtles and cypress trees springing up? Well, clearly, that's not the point of this verse. Instead, it's speaking past simply these words and plants named to tell us something more important. So what do myrtle and cypress mean for Isaiah? Well, myrtle is one of the things that you can use to build your temporary structure during the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as Sukkot, I believe. Now, what you're doing there is you're celebrating the fact that God gave provision to us in the wilderness. And you're making a place which is set up so that God can come and dwell. In the New Testament, in the book of John, we're told that God comes in tabernacles among us. So he becomes the real and definitive provision in the desert, in the wilderness. And that what was set up for him to dwell in was kind of the old covenant, right? That was a people and a culture that was cultivated in a certain way based on certain laws and traditions and customs to make a place, make a structure for the Messiah to come into, to tabernacle 
among us. So myrtle is one of the things that they construct this with. And in that way, it points towards the law because that's something that they constructed in order to make a place for the Messiah to come. Also, um, interestingly, Esther, though in Greek, I think it means star, right? I guess, right? You guys know that. I think we've hit that in other episodes. Um, but in Hebrew, Esther means myrtle. And she was a type of provision given, um, not in the wilderness, but instead in Babylonian captivity. And her role is to move the heart of the king to bring about justice, to bring about peace instead of war, to bring about good laws instead of evil ones. So we see this myrtle connection once again that connects us to peace, justice, good law, and causing a place where God's people can dwell. Cypress. This is often rendered fir tree or evergreen tree, depending on the translation you're reading. And it's a sign of eternal life. It's something that does not die, or at least does not appear to, right? It doesn't just go brown. It's not deciduous. It is coniferous. Um, and it's also used in, well, doing something similar to what the myrtle did. In Second Chronicles 3, it's mentioned as being the material from which the main hall of Solomon's temple is made out of. So again, it's this construction material to make a place for God to come and dwell. Um, so it's something that brings eternal life. That's its symbolic thing <laughs> by making a place for God to dwell. And we lost eternal life in the Garden of Eden by breaking God's law. So by going back to God's law by actually obeying God, and we're returning to this eternal life. Okay, so now we got that. What, is it, what, about, the, what about the thorns, all right? So the thorns are set in contrast to the myrtle and the cypress, both of which are becoming a place where we can live with God. Um, thorns are the place where we went in the beginning when we got kicked out of Eden, right? We were living with God in this garden, and then we were kicked out into the thorns, into the nettles, into all that stuff. So thorns represent exile. They represent a judgment upon us. Um, and there's two places which you should be thinking of when we think of thorns. One is the Garden of Eden, and the other is the biggest act of injustice ever, the crucifixion of our Lord. That was the largest abuse of power, the most tragic perversion of law in the history of the universe, when they condemned the Son of God, innocent Christ, to death. So it's the very opposite of what, say, the myrtle and the cypress represent, making a place to receive God. No, this was a place, this was the act of excluding God and pushing him all the way into the grave. And it's done through injustice, through perversion of law, and through violence instead of peace. Caesar so set in opposition. Now, particularly for Adam and the thorns which he uh, gets cursed with contending with, it, it really symbolizes four things. One, imagine you're Adam. Every time you go to begin harvesting something and you encounter those thorns which you're now working among because of the curse in Genesis, you think, gee, why am I dealing with these stupid thorns? Oh, yeah, because that serpent showed up 
And I lost that battle tragically and got exiled from Eden and handed over the keys of dominion over the earth to Satan. And that's bad. And now we're still at war. And now the whole cosmos is at war. And this is bad. So the first thing that he's going to be reminded of when he encounters these thorns is that there is a giant cosmic battle going on. The second thing is, is that there's a separation. He's been um, separated from Eden. There is a breakdown of his uh, relationship, not just with the earth, but with the animals, um, with the plants itself, and even inside of his own family. So Cain and Abel, first two kids, Cain kills Abel. This is an, an insto-civil war breaks out. So he's reminded that not only is there this giant war going on writ large, um, us versus the devil, but there's also problems internal. There's a civil war that's going off. There's a separation and isolation even from the things which ought to be included in our common life. But that's not all the thorns represent to our friend Adam. It also is a reminder of his poverty. So he's cursed to work in the dust of the earth amongst the thorns. So he went from enjoying the bounty and abundance of the Garden of Eden to scraping out a meager living in the dust amongst the thorns. So it's a reminder of his poverty. And the final thing, that these thorns and thistles, the nettles remind him of, is as he's pierced, as he's wounded, and when he bleeds, it calls to mind his own mortality, that his body will see corruption, that he lost immortality and eternal life. So it's set entirely against eternal life. This is a sign of his mortality and his subjection to physical death, pain, and wounding. So those are the four things. And if you don't remember them all, I promise you, you will remember them by the end of the episode. Okay, um, so that's what's said against our evergreen, fragrant, beautiful trees, which in the tradition, it seems to be that they kind of believed or at least said that God himself causes the cypress and the myrtle to bloom. It's not something that was uh, cultivated, at least not to my knowledge. It was instead something that was just given by God as abundance for people. So that's the, uh, that's the, uh, the tension here in Isaiah's prophecy. So let's, uh, let's read a little bit more of it. We're going to briefly comment, then we get to hit our main texts. He writes, and this is God speaking, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's stop there. What is God the Father thinking about from all eternity? Well, he makes one all-powerful omniscient act of self-reflection, which begets the Son himself. So the reason for his thoughts being higher than our thoughts, well, there are many, but one of them is because he thinks of the infinite. He thinks of himself. He thinks of the cause, the maximum of truth, and he generates and begets the Son in this all-powerful, omniscient act of self-reflection. Yeah, that's certainly not the way we think. 
Well, we do it a little bit, but we don't beget anybody. The next part goes on to say, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's this next part that, okay, he's having these thoughts, thoughts which beget the word. And then the word comes down, comes into composition with the earth itself, causing it to bud, to flourish, to flower, and even to produce bread that is offered to the eater. That's what the logos, the word that comes from his mouth does. It does all the things which he desires. It accomplishes the purposes for which it was sent. This is an incarnational prophecy. Goes on. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. So, we have the Trinity moving into the Incarnation. From the Incarnation, we have us being empowered to actually follow the law in a way that wasn't actually possible in the Old Testament to the same extent. To be able to love with God's own love. To be able to do incarnate um, incarnation-powered sacramental acts of love which are pleasing to God and not just not screw up. So this is the blooming of the earth. It's a result of the incarnations because these thoughts that God had for all eternity and it allows us to actually ma maintain justice and do what is right. It is the undoing of the failure at the Garden of Eden through Christ's work. And there's many more things to talk about there. But that's the basic sketch. This is in the context of justice, righteousness, right worship, avoidance of evil. So in short, the law is the sign of Christ's righteousness that in the New Testament is infused into us, transforming and perfecting us into having eternal life. Um, there you go. And that's the context of this Myrtle and Cyprus. And we already covered a lot of the imagery. All right. I think we have the background necessary. I'm going to read a bit from the beginning of Zechariah, a bit from the uh, Plato's Laws, book one. And we now understand this whole idea of the law, righteousness, peace, undoing the problems in the Garden of Eden, and the role of the cypress and the myrtle versus thorns and death and all that. Zechariah. During the night, I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, these are the ones the Lord has sent to go through the earth. So that's the way he's kicking this whole vision off. Here's the way Plato starts the laws. 
Now, there's a couple characters here I'll be reading in ever so slightly different voices um, instead of saying they're difficult to say names every single time. So it begins with this Athenian, then uh, Clinius, and then Megalalius. Um, so there's only three characters. So the Athenian kicks it off. Tell me, strangers, is a god or some man supposed to be the author of your laws? Clinius. A god, stranger, in very truth, a god. Among us Cretans, he is said to have been Zeus. But in Lademosia, whence our friend here comes, I believe they would say Apollo is their lawgiver. Would they not, Megalus? Megalus, certainly. Athenian. And do you, Clinius, believe, as Homer says, that every ninth year Minos went to converse with his Olympian sire and was inspired by him to make laws for your cities? Yes, that's our tradition. And there was Radamertheus, a brother of his, with whose name you are familiar. He is reputed to have the to, be, to have been the justice of men. And we Cretans are of opinion that he earned this, ex, this reputation for his righteous administration of justice when he was alive. Yes, and a noble reputation it was, worthy of a son of Zeus. As you and Megalus have been trained in these institutions, I dare say that you will not be unwilling to give me an account of your government and laws." On our way, we can pass the time pleasantly in talking about them. For I am told that the distance from Sinus to the cave and the temple of Zeus is considerable. And doubtlessly, there are shady places under the lofty trees, which will protect us from the scorching sun. Being no longer young, we may often stop to rest beneath them and get over the whole journey without difficulty, beguiling the time by conversation." Clinius. Yes, stranger, and if we proceed onward, we shall come to groves of cypress, which are of a rare height and beauty, and there are green meadows in which we may repose and converse. Very good. Notice how similar these are. We have Zachariah seeing the myrtles, and the men are standing in a ravine. These guys are seeing the cypress. They're going down into a green meadow. Both of them see a place of rest, of peace, and of proper order. That's where they want to start this. And they're both going to see how things go wrong. Now, if you know anything about Old Testament prophets, you'll know that the whole job description is to help people recognize the law was given by God and that people need to follow it. Now, Plato wants to make the same move here. Not only does he call to mind a similar setting, and not only together do they talk about what Isaiah is prophesying, but they both make this move of grounding the authority and law of law in God and saying that as a result of God being the divine lawgiver, nations ought to behave in accordance with this type of law. All right. Now, that is just the first similarity. It, that is not the one that prompted the, the podcast. We are still in the setup section. I know. A wordy, wordy podcaster this fellow is. We're going to continue into what might be the most famous part, second most famous part of Zechariah. That's where he's seeing these four horses. Now, the colors of them, they get rendered 
differently. We see red, brown, and white is common, um, but we also see dappled, pale, um, gray, and colors have different meanings, the words at times, so yeah. The part that you do need to know is that the colors are the same ones as the color horses later on in Revelation, which we'll be reading from. So, we will pick up with where he says, um, what are these, Lord? That's verse 9. The angel who was talking with me said, I will show you who they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing amongst the myrtle trees, we have gone through the earth and found the whole earth at rest and at peace. Now, these death ponies, if you will, are at peace now, but they won't be for long. And they certainly are not when John sees these exact same horses in the book of Revelation. Now, I'll be reading Revelation, and uh, let's see. I think we get, we'll get all the color horses and all of what they do by the end of the episode, I promise. But listen to John's description. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So that's the first one, a conquering horse. That's white. Then the lamb opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So second red horse is not conquest of others. It is chaos amongst one's own nation. It is people killing one another, like civil war. When the lamb opened the third seal... I heard the living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. I know what you're thinking here. Jake, can you convert these into today's prices? Well, yes, I can. Don't have to scream at me. All right. In today's prices, um, the retail price on average of flour, wheat necessarily, because that's typically only quoted in wholesale. And from what I can tell, since it's a small quantity here in Revelation, I think it's targeting the retail price. So given that grinding wheat into flour is not terribly expensive, we're just going to go with um, wheat. And that is 66 cents per pound on average retail. That would mean that a day's wages here is only a dollar thirty-two cents. So this is a horrible economic depression. What's that you say? What happens if we hold the wages constant and then compare it to say the price of a five-pound bag of flour? Ah, well, given the um, well the the January of this year's. Average private um, 
hourly wages and multiplied by a standard eight-hour-a-week uh, or eight-hour-a-day workday. And given the price of flour, that implies that a bag of flour would cost $661.40. Whew! That's a serious amount of inflation, guys. That makes that makes Joe Biden's America look like nothing. So what he's announcing is that there is incredibly high prices and or wages are not going far at all. This is economic disaster. People would have to work extraordinarily hard to just get enough to eat. Then the lamb opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So we have these four spirits, the four horses, which come from the four winds of the earth. Zechariah sees them first, and then John sees them in the new covenant. And he sees them predictive of, of the end, right? And what are they? Well, they're divided into two categories, communal and personal. And inside of these categories, it's either without or within. Let me explain. Horse number one, the white horse. This represents a communal problem, war. And it's without, so it's foreign war. So this was given the power to go in conquest. So the white horse is foreign war. But war can also happen within. And that is a civil war. So it's the community having a problem within. And that's the red horse, which gives the, uh, the power to uh, cause people to kill one another. So foreign war, civil war. And now we have going down to the personal level. And again, we have the without and then within. So personal uh, tragedy, which is without, would be economic disruption. So your ability to buy food and housing, your ability for your work to actually be useful, all of your stuff being taken away, that doesn't assault you personally. Well, it kind of does, but it's you without, right? It's not your heart stops, it's your car was crashed. So that's the next type of judgment. That's the, um, that's the black horse, economic disruption and depression. Then finally, we have the personal within, and that is famine, plague, being attacked by a wild beast, things like that, things which assault you personally. So you get sick, you are weak, you are eaten by a, I don't know, a jackalope. So that's the pale horse. So those are our, our four, the white horse, war from without, foreign war, the red horse, war from within, civil war, the black horse, economic disruption, your stuff's taken away, the pale horse, famine, plague, death, that's uh, a personal, internal problem. Got it? Got it? Good. Okay. Well, let's keep going on here. Now, I will point out that implicit in all judgments in Scripture is a call to repentance, as we learned in the Jonah episode, to be overturned 
does not mean to be destroyed. It can mean to be brought to repentance. So even the most terrible judgments at least hold the possibility of being able to repent. So these judgments are coming. There must be a way to work against them, to somehow bring back the peace, harmony, and love which is missing in each of these. So there is a way to stop these foreign wars, the civil war, the economic disruption, the famine, the plague, and the death, if we are to repent and go back to obeying God, right? So that's implicit in these judgments. Now, I told you by the end of this episode, you will remember these color horses. I think that apocalyptic literature in general, if it's not the explicit purpose, it seems to be um, somehow inclusive of this, is to create kind of like a mind palace. So the way anybody remembers vast amounts of information is to make it spatial, to make it ridiculous, and then to put meaning on these things. That's a very common practice. Even Thomas Aquinas talks about it. And writers going way, way, way back use this to remember, say, poems, which were as long as a current book, all from memory. So I think apocalyptic literature is using some of these techniques in order to have you remember these very important prophetic events. So I'm going to give you just a few little things that you can use to help remember all these four horses, because I certainly want you to remember them all as we're reading Plato's Laws and just kind of keep an ear out for where he's mentioning these. So white, the white horse, I like to think of People waving a white flag in surrender because that means foreign war. So countries are at war. Somebody's waving a white flag. It's the white horse. Red. Civil wars can be extraordinarily bloody. If anything, I think they're more bloody than foreign wars, though I'd, I'd have to look at some numbers on that. But to my knowledge, they are. Black. Well, this is economic turmoil. So think black swan events. Think, uh, what is it? Black Tuesday when the, the stock market crashed. Pale. This one is, uh, think of the paleness of somebody who's sick from a famine, from some type of disease, uh, somebody who's in terrible pain. So that's the pale horse. And again, there's different ways to render the words for each one of these colors. Pale particularly seems a bit ambiguous. All right, so those are the horses, see if you can remember them. Let's jump into um, Plato's Laws. We'll be reading a insanely long part from uh, book one. I think we'll actually take a brief break right here, and then we'll pick it up. First thing to know is that this Athenian is somebody from a, a very high class, you know, culture-infused kind of city. He's from Athens, right? That's like somebody being from uh, New York or London or Paris, right? And then these other people from, like, Crete. Crete is like saying, oh, yeah, I'm from, like, I don't know, the bad part of New Jersey. I'm from the hood in Detroit. No, I'm from, I'm from Vegas. It's like, whoa, you guys are up to some pretty wild stuff over there. Um, and then the, the other fellow, Megalus, where was he from? Lacedonia. So he's like from, oh goodness, I'll probably get this wrong. What's a good example? Uh, to my knowledge, they're pretty like a warlike kind of group. So imagine a bunch of guys from, say, Texas, and they got their, you know, six shooter on their hip. and They're like, you know, the government might might come and get us, but we got our bunkers. 
Um, that, that's what I want you to imagine here. So we have one guy who's from uh, inner city Detroit, one guy who's from Texas, and they bump into, say, a well-dressed man from London. And then they have the conversation. Here's the Athenian kicking it off. And first, I, I want to know why your law has ordained that you should have common meals and gymnastic exercise and wear arms. So it's this guy from London or New York saying, so, uh, bro amigos, I've noticed that you're chugging proto and hitting the gym and you have an AR-15 on your back. Um, what's up? Okay. Clinius says, I think, stranger, that the aim of our institutions is easily intelligible to anyone. Look at the character of our country. Crete is not like Thessaly, a large plain, and for this reason they have horsemen in Thessaly, and we have runners. The inequality of the ground in our country is more adapted to locomotion on foot, and then if you have runners and you have light arms, no one can carry a heavy weight when running, and bows and arrows are convenient because they're light. Now all these regulations have been made with a view to war. And the legislator appears to me to have looked to this in all his arrangements. The common meals, if I am not mistaken, were instituted for him by a similar reason, because he saw that while we were in the field, the citizens are by nature of the case compelled to take their meals together for the sake of mutual protection. He seems to me to have thought the world foolish in not understanding that all men are at always at war with one another. Isn't that Hobbes right there, Thomas Hobbes, I think? It's kind of hear an echo of him. And if in war there ought to be common meals, and certainly persons regularly appointed among others to protect an army, there should be continued in peace. For what men in general term peace would be said by him to be only in name. In reality, every city is in a natural state of war with every other, not indeed proclaimed by heralds, but everlasting. And if you look closely, you will find that this was the intention of the Cretan legislator. All institutions, private as well as public, were arranged by him with a view to war. In giving them, he was under the impression that no possessions or institutions are of any value to him who is defeated in battle. For all the good things of the conquered pass into the hands of the conqueror. I'll point out a few things. Maybe poorly characterized this dude from Texas, but it is funny. They're all taking up arms. And here it's like, Hey, bro, it's like saying, um, hey, why do you have an AR-15 on your back? It's like, oh, well, you don't understand. Um, where I come from, it's really hard to drive a tank. Like, I couldn't park it. Where would I bring it? Um, I'm not going to, like, have, like, an armored troop carrier because it's really not fuel efficient. So I just carry an AR. It's like, that's that's a funny answer to his question. <laughs> so I think we need to point that out first. There's a lot of humor in this dialogue, just like most of his dialogues. Um. But here he's taken up this view, which we see with, uh, with Nietzsche, with Marx, with Foucault, with Hobbes, with so many that there's this natural state of like violence and that the goal of law is to somehow put down the violence and that peace is just a continuation of war whereby there is a continual conqueror. Plato doesn't think that's true. And, well, he'll kind of tease out why. You appear to me, stranger, to have been thoroughly trained in the Cretan institutions and to be well informed about them. Will you tell me a little more explicitly what is the principle of government which you would lay down? You seem to imagine that a well-governed state ought to be ordered as to conquer all other states in war. 
Am I right in supposing this to be your meaning? Certainly, and our Laodicean friend, if I'm not mistaken, will agree with me. Why, my good friend, how could any Laodicean say anything else? The Athenian. And is what you say applicable only to states or also to villages? Clintus. Mm, Both. Athenian. The case is the same. Yes. And in the village will there be the same war of family against family, and even of individual against individual? Clintus. Same. Athenian. And should each... Hmm. Should each man conceive himself to be his own enemy? What shall we say? Isn't this a cool move? So it starts out, he's explaining his culture, and everything is based on this power and oppression. Everything is based on this military um, ability. And he says, well, that makes sense that you're repelling these foreign opponents, but you said you take your common meals together to kind of protect yourself from different groups inside of your country. Okay, well, what about villages? You said that even there in this type of this type of warfare. What about families? And he goes, "Well, yeah, I guess so." You know, he says, "Well, what about yourself? Is there a conflict even amongst yourself?" And that's a really cool move he's making. So he begins with the communal. He looks at the external and the internal, and then he's switching it from the communal to the personal. Clintus says, "Oh, Athenian stranger." inhabitant of Attica, I will not call you, for you seem to deserve rather to be named after the goddess herself, because you go back to first principles. You have thrown a light upon the argument, and will now be better able to understand what I was just saying, that all men are publicly one another's enemies, and each man privately his own. The Athenian, my good sir, what do you mean? Clintus, Moreover, there is victory and defeat, the first and best of victories, the lowest and the worst of defeats, where each man gains or sustains at the hands not of another, but of himself. This shows that there's a war against ourselves going on even within each one of us. Athenian. All right, let's reverse the order of the argument, seeing that every individual is either his own superior or his own inferior. May we say that there is the same principle in the house, in the village, and in the state? So what he's saying here is the claim was made that, well, yeah, I guess if we're fighting even against ourselves, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, right? So that implies that, all right, there's times where we're our own superior or our own inferior. That could spell out a little bit more. Clintus. You mean that in each of them there's a principle of superiority or inferiority to self? Athenian, yes. Well, you're quite right in asking the question, for there certainly is such a principle, and above all, in states, in the state in which the better citizens win a victory over the mob and over the inferior classes, may be truly said to be better than itself, and may be justly praised. Where such a victory is gained or centered is the opposite case. Athenian, Whether the better is really conquered by the worse is a question which requires more discussion and may be therefore left for the present, but I I now quite understand your meaning when you say that citizens who are of the same race and live in the same cities may unjustly conspire 
and having the superiority in numbers may overcome and enslave the few just. And when they prevailed, the state may be truly called its own inferior and therefore bad. And when they are defeated, its own superior and therefore good. Clintus, your remark, stranger, is a paradox, and yet we cannot possibly deny it. Here's another case for consideration. In a family, there may be several brothers who are the offspring of a single pair. Very possibly, the, the majority of them may be unjust, and the just may be a minority. Very possibly. I'll put right here, isn't this interesting how it still follows the biblical order? It talks about this large-scale war and violence. And then after that, it goes into a family where we could have two brothers fighting this type of civil war where one, the evil one, overcomes the other. So it's still tracking with what we see in Scripture. Athenian, and you and I ought not to raise a question of words as to whether this family and household are rightly said to be superior when they conquer and inferior when they are conquered. For we are not now considering what may or may not be proper or customary way of speaking, but we are considering the natural principles of right and wrong in laws. Clintus, what you say, stranger, is most true. Megalus, quite excellent in my opinion, as far as we've gone. He's just kicking some stuff in here. Athenian, again, might we not be a judge over these brethren of whom we are speaking? Well, certainly. Now, which would be a better judge? One who destroyed the bad and appointed the good to govern themselves, or one who, while allowing the good to govern, let the bad live and made them voluntarily submit? Or third, I suppose, in the scale of excellence, might be placed a judge who, finding the family distracted, not only did not destroy anyone, but reconciled them to one another forever after, and gave them laws which they mutually observed that were able to keep them as friends. Now pause right there. Isn't that what Isaiah is looking towards? Isn't that what Adam and Eve were looking towards? Isn't that what the law was always looking towards? A perfect judge to come amongst our family and not just to destroy those who are mired in sin, but instead to come up with a perfect law, one that could cause even the guilty to become reconciled and to be joined together in a just order as friends. Clintus, the last would be by far the best sort of judge and legislator. Athenian, and yet the aim of all the laws which he would give would be the reverse of war. Clintus, very true. Athenian, and notice how Clinius just goes along with it. Yeah, that's right, man. But the Athenian has flipped the script. As Clinius began by saying, hey, man, all of our laws are about war. We're not going to get beat up by anybody's foreign. We're not going to get messed up by anybody who's, you know, city to city, any roving gangs. Heck, nobody in my family is going to take me on. I'm going to keep hitting the gym. I'm, ju I'm just like this mega man. I'm awesome. I'm cool. I got my gun on my, on my hip, which there's nothing wrong with that. Pro second man, guys. But this guy's kind of this macho Chad character who's being presented. 
And then the Athenian says, ooh, but is there conflict in you? He goes, yeah. It's like, all right, how do you rule yourself? Oh, I, I guess <laughs> I don't actually try to destroy a part of myself. I try to actually bring it back into justice and harmony. All right, cool. Let's go the opposite direction. How do we bring the justice and harmony, the peace, the proper order back into society? Because what we're doing here is we're actually bringing things back into unity. We're actually restoring life. We're putting laws which direct us towards peace and not just to war. We're undoing war. The Athenian. And will he who constitutes the states and orders the life of men have in view external war? Or that kind of intestine war called civil war, which no one, if he could prevent, would like to have occurring in his own state. And when occurring, everyone would wish to quit of it as soon as possible. Clinus, he would have the latter chiefly in view. Athenian. And would he prefer that the civil war should be terminated by the destruction of one of the parties and by the victory of the others? Or that peace and friendship should be reestablished and that being reconciled, they should give their attention to foreign enemies? Everyone would desire the latter in the case of his own state. And would not that also be the desire of the legislator? Certainly. And would not everyone always have laws for the sake of the best? Well, to be sure. But war, whether external or civil, is not the best, and the need of either is to be, to be depreciated. But peace with one another and goodwill, they are the best. Nor is the victory of the state over itself to be regarded as a really good thing, but as a necessity. A man might as well say that the body was in the best state when sick and purged by medicine, forgetting that there's also a state of the body which needs no purge. And in like manner, no one can be a true statesman, whether he aims at the happiness of the individuals or of the state, who looks only, or first of all, to external warfare. Nor will he ever be a sound legislator who orders peace for the sake of war, and not war for the sake of peace. So he shows that we might think that we create laws and we crush, say, the evil people in our state. And that that's ideal, right? That we rule with this iron fist and we get rid of people we don't like and we, we do that. And then we have the best ruling. And, and that's clearly the best, right? Like our, our good people beat the bad people and then everything's good. Well, the Athenian here disagrees. He thinks that that's like somebody being sick and being treated with medicine. That it's not the ideal. The ideal is health. And health is defined elsewhere by Plato as a type of justice internal to the body. So everything gets what it is due and produces that which is required by the whole. So health is something which is more fundamental, even than sickness. And it's something which ought to be our aim, even when we treat with medicine to purge out what is evil. So it's kind of a subtle difference here, but it goes from this idea of the primacy of war to the primacy of peace, that justice is not just the punishment of the evil, but justice is a return to a state of peace and justice amongst the members, which looks like a friendship among all that are in the state.
And if you want more on that part, go and look at the friendship episode of the Church and State series I did where I heavily examined Aristotle's thought on friendship. Those are a good one. Clintus, I suppose there is truth, stranger, in that remark of yours. And yet, I'm greatly mistaken if war is not the entire aim and object of our institutions and also of the Laodicean. Athenian, I dare say, but there is no reason why we should rudely quarrel with one another about your legislators instead of gently questioning them, seeing that both we and they are equally in earnest. Please follow me and the argument closely. And first, I will put forward Tiritus, an Athenian by birth, but also a Spartan citizen, whom of all men was most eager about war. Well, he says, I sing not, I care not about any man, even if they were the richest and possessed every good. And then he gives a list of them. If he be not at all times a brave warrior, I imagine that you too must have heard his poems. Our Laodicean friend has probably heard more of them and more than enough. Megalus, very true. And they have found their way from Laodicea all the way to Crete, says Clintus, the Athenian. Come now and let us all join in asking the question of Tiritus. O most divine poet, we will say to him, the excellent praise which you have bestowed on those who excel in war sufficiently proves that you are wise and good, and I and Megalus and Cletus of Sinus do, as I believe, entirely agree with you. But we should like to be quite sure that we are speaking of the same men. Tell us then, do you agree with us in thinking that there are two kinds of war, or what would you say? A far inferior man to Tiritus would have no difficulty in replying quite truly that war is of two kinds, one which is universal, called civil war, and is, as we are saying now, of all wars the worst, the others, as we have should admit, in which we fall out with other nations who are of a different race, is a far more mild form of warfare. Clinus, certainly far milder. Athenian, well now when you praise and blame war in this high-flown strain, who are you pra praising or blaming, and to which kind of war are you referring? I suppose that you must mean foreign war, if I am to judge from expressions of yours in which you say that you abominate those who refuse to look upon fields of blood and will not draw near and strike at their enemies. And we shall naturally go on to him, you, Tartus, as it seems, praise those who distinguish themselves in external and foreign war, and he must admit this. Clintus, evidently. So here, what it's saying is that, all right, we need an internal justice, but then we can face an external threat. And that's something that was lost Garden of Eden style. So we had, in a sense... Civil war, a break of unity between the between God and man, between Adam and Eve, and then they were not able to stand up to the devil. So there's nothing heroic in warring civilly. That's not something that has any play, praise there. No, it's only if you can be unified in yourself and oppose an evil threat. And that's something that we can actually say is a good war. Athenian, though, there are times, well, yeah, anyways, Athenian, they are good, but we say that there are still better men whose virtue is displayed in the greatest of all battles. And we too have a poet whom we summon as a witness. 
Thenus, a citizen of Megara in Sicily. Cernus, he says, who is faithful in a civil broil, is worth his weight in gold and silver. So he's calling up uh, various uh, figures which are, are, are known to them, various poets and authors who comment on the various wars which have been going on. And such as one is far better, as we affirm, than the other in a more difficult kind of war, much in the same degree as justice and temperance and wisdom, when united with courage, are better than courage only. For a man cannot be faithful and good in civil strife without having all virtue. But in the war which uh, uh, Tiritus speaks of, many a mercenary soldier will take a stand and be ready to die at his post. And yet there are generally, and almost without exception, insolent, unjust, violent men and the most senseless of human beings. You will ask what the conclusion is and what I am seeking to prove. I maintain that the divine legislator of Crete, like any other who is worthy of consideration, will always, and above all things, in making laws, have regard to the greatest virtue, which, according to Thetis, is loyalty in the hour of danger, and may be called truly perfect justice, whereas that virtue which Tiritus highly praises is well enough and was praised by the poet at the right time, yet in place and dignity may be said to be only forthright, i.e. it ranks after justice, temperance, and wisdom. So here he's saying that when we're actually trying to remedy a civil war, we require more than just courage. We have to have justice to bring order back amongst our members. Temperance, because we are dealing in part with ourselves. We cannot be too harsh. And wisdom, so we know the best way to actually, so we know what we're actually aiming at to begin with. But he points out that although it takes a greater virtue to solve a civil war, there is a virtue to fighting a foreign war, really any type. That is courage, which makes possible the exercise of many of these other virtues, but can be had and can be had alone. And he gives the example of the mercenary. Stranger, we are disregarding, we are denigrating our inspired lawmaker to a rank that is far beneath him. Nay, I think that we degrade not him, but ourselves, if we imagine that Liturgus and Minus laid down laws both in Laodicea and Crete, mainly with a view to war. So he's subtly critiquing these divine lawmakers, and he's saying that we're actually degrading ourselves when we put into the mouths of the divine the view that war is primary instead of peace. And I think that's true. I named a few philosophers like Marx or I guess Nietzsche or, or Foucault, who put in the mouths of God, if you will, they say, hey, the ultimate justice is for us to take vengeance on the people who are supposedly the oppressors, to grab the reins of power and to use it to exercise violence against others. What they're doing is they're creating a type of civil war. They're not bringing justice, though they claim they are. They're not being temperate, though they claim they're being even-handed. And they're certainly not wise because they're fools. And it degrades us when we make this terrible move to put war as primary and to imagine that that is justice and that's the will of God. A thick, rich, dense peace is where we begin. That is primary. That's why he begins it amongst this happy cypress meadow. That's why Zechariah begins this amongst the myrtle trees. That's why Genesis begins the whole story in the Garden of Eden, to show the primacy of peace 
And how we can get back to that is by undoing the causes of war. And if we don't, if we take the wrong view, if we are wrong in our laws, then it unleashes four spirits of destruction upon us. How much more do we have? Okay, a few more paragraphs, guys. Then I'll have to take one more brief pause. The Athenian. You ought to have said, stranger, the Cretan laws are with, are with reason famous amongst the Hellenes, for they fulfill the object of laws, which is to make those who use them happy, and they confer every sort of good. Now, goods are of two kinds. They're human, and there are divine goods, and the human hang upon the divine, and the state which attains the greater at the same time acquires the less, or not having the greater has neither. Of the lesser goods, the first is health, the second, beauty, the third, strength, which includes swiftness and running and bodily agility generally, and the fourth is wealth. Not the blind god, Pluto, but one who is keen of sight, is, if only he has wisdom for his companion, for wisdom is chief and leader of the divine class of goods. And the next follows temperance, and from the union of these two, with courage, springs justice. And the fourth is the scale of virtue, in, is, uh, in the scale of virtue is courage. All these naturally take precedence of the other goods, and this is the order in which the legislator must place them. Let's slow down right here. So now he's dividing goods into two groups, right? Some relate to just the human, and some he calls divine. So the human goods, he lists four, and there are two types. Goods which relate to you, like you bodily, yourself, and things which you own. So we have um, health, beauty, and strength. Those are goods which belong to you. And the fourth being wealth is something which belongs to you but is not part of you. So that's part of his categories. Then in the divine goods, he has justice. And uh, that's what springs out of the union of temperance and um, what is it? temperance and wisdom united with courage, I believe he said. Um, injustice is that which causes that unity and that order and that peace in society. So he's saying that's, that's top. Um, and note, all of these things are against the type of war. All these naturally take precedence of the other goods, and this is the order in which the legislator must place them. And after them, he will enjoin the rest of his ordinances on the citizens with a view to these, the human looking to the divine and the divine looking to their leader mind. Some of his ordinances will relate to the contracts of marriage, which they make one with another, and then to procreation and education of children, both male and female. The duty of the lawgiver will be to take charge of his citizens in youth and age and in every course in life and give them rewards and punishments and in reference to all their intercourse with one another. He ought to consider their pains and pleasures and desires and the vehemence of all of their passions. He should keep a watch over them and blame and praise them rightly by the mouth of the laws themselves. Also, with regard to anger and terror and the other uh, perturbations of the soul, which, I can't talk, which arise out of misfortune and the deliverances from them which prosperity brings and the experiences which come to men in diseases 
or in war or poverty or the opposite of these. So there you go. They're taking thought as a giver of law to the things which cause man to encounter disease, war, and poverty. So these are the things which a legislator, I know that it took a while to get there, but I think he was outlining it along the way. There are four bad things which can happen when law goes wrong. War, disease, and poverty. In war, he has taken great pains to split into two categories. War from without, foreign war. War from within, civil war. Diseases which affect you as you. And poverty which affects the things which you own. These are the four spirits which John and Revelation and Zechariah in the book of Zechariah see as coming out of a break from a union with the divine law. That's exactly what they're targeting. That's exactly what Plato is targeting. And Plato gives us the opposite of each of these. He shows that to avoid war, we need wisdom, we need justice, we need courage, we need temperance. And that solves the foreign civil war problem. Now, we can't make other people be virtuous. But if we were virtuous, then, yeah, that would be solved. And the supremacy of peace reigns supreme. And then, internally, the opposite of this poverty and disease is the strength, health, beauty, and prosperity. So that's what we have on the other side of that one. Um, I think we'll wrap it up on that part. You guys can read it yourself if you like. So I think that's what we learned from both of these. Um, I told you I would make sure that you remembered the, uh, the horseman. So uh, the white horse, that is foreign war. The red horse, civil war. The black horse, economic disaster. And the pale horse is disease, famine, and death. And I think you should be able to remember the goods which we just went over that ought to be the object of our law. We ought to try to get to those goods. And therefore, by having good law, which is from a divine origin, we should be able to restore the supremacy of peace. Now, Plato talks about that good judge that comes among, and they really don't do much with that. They just say, wouldn't it be really cool? Because there is a real problem. There's a big problem that when it's an issue in a civil war or in a foreign war, there's no judge that comes among us that just actually loves all people. No, there isn't until Christ, right? And that's part of the reason why this whole thing gets picked up in Revelation, because that's when the judge comes back to earth and seeks to bring peace and does actually bring retribution on the evil and reward the just. And that's one of the objects of our hope, is we hope in the coming of Christ once more. The, the perfect judge that's actually within our family, because he became incarnate, but is also the divine lawgiver, and has a love for all parties, such that he can turn enemies into friends. That's what Plato wanted, but had no ability to foresee. That's what Zechariah points to, and that's what John sees. So I said that the four horses for Zechariah were probably the second most famous passage. Let me read you the most 
famous passage. And then we got to hit the mailbag. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of God, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? All right, what's going on here? Well, first, it's recognizing that there's a cosmic conflict. There is a foreign war. And we are actually right to be courageously fighting Satan. We see that the Lord is on our side and that this high priest is on our side as well. Now, he's described as a burning stick snatched from the fire. He's said to be the high priest. He's in heaven and his name is Joshua. If you haven't caught why Zechariah is actually a top-rate prophet by now, well, let me tell you what ought to be obvious. Joshua is the older version of a name that you know much, much better. The way that you say it in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is the same word as Jesus. <laughs> so this is the Old Testament equivalent name of Jesus. So Zechariah is shown Jesus, the high priest, standing before God. Satan accuses him, but he's innocent. He is a man snatched from the fire. Why? Because, well, he descended into the fires of hell and he came back up. Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing with him, take off his filthy clothes. And Jesus did take the form of a slave. In the incarnation, he put on the dirty clothes of humanity, and then in the transfiguration and the resurrection, he does indeed take these off. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now, one of the points of this clean turban, I think we talked about this in Leviticus, is the, the turban was meant to bring heat and bring sweat away from your head. So it was something that was given to the priest because the tabernacle and then the temple were a tiny type of Garden of Eden. And one of the curses is that by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. So when they work and till, which is the Garden of Eden and the uh, temple and tabernacle language to describe the work that the priests do, they get this curse undone because the turban on their head wicks away the heat and the sweat from their head. So it's a type of mercy that was originally in the Garden of Eden returning to mankind. So he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says, if you will walk in obedience to me. And keep my requirements. Then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua. You and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See, the stone I have set in front of you, Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. Now we'll engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord God. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will invite your neighbors to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So this vision of this Jesus character could have been Jesus. But also we see that the vision itself 
here is symbolic of things to come because Christ had not yet ascended as judge. He had not descended into hell and come back in the ascension. So he's told that this branch, right? That's why Jesus describes himself as the, the you know, vine branch whole thing. He's pulling some imagery from Zechariah. Um, well, yeah, he came and he removed all the sin of the land in a single day. Um, of course, we see returning this motif of a just judge, of good law, and of good law which destroys evil. Not just evildoers, but the sin of the land in a single day. All right. Well, to sum this up, guys, um, these two, Plato and Zechariah, they both have a uh, they all both have an idea of the supremacy of peace, the primacy of peace instead of the supremacy of war. They see that that's more fundamental in the same way that health is more fundamental to the body than medicine would be to cure a sickness. They want justice at every level, externally, corporately, internally, corporately, externally, individually, and internally, individually. And that's the, that's the basis of law, to pursue the virtues which undo all of these evils which can plague us, to keep at bay those four destructive spirits which both Plato Zechariah, well, both, Plato, Zechariah, and John all describe, but in subtly different ways. All right, to the mailbag. How do you like that new mailbag question sound? All right, on to the mailbag. First question. Non-competes seem singularly anti-free market, but is there ever a place for them? So about 18% of the American workforce is under a non-compete agreement. And that means that at least for some period of time, they can't just bug off and go and work for somebody else or create their own business if it's going to be competing with their present employer. Now, this might sound free market, but I don't think it really is. One of the basis of the free market is respect for private property. Now, here's the interesting thing which goes on. Um, human capital is thought to be the private property only of the person in which this capital dwells. But that's not how it starts. Let me give you an example. Let's say you are a skilled carpenter and um, you decide to take on a, a, an employee, an apprentice. Well, you have a lot of human capital and it allows you to make, say, $50 an hour. And this new person does not have that. So you give them that human capital by teaching and training them how to do the job so that they can then produce enough value in an hour to justify trading that for $50 each hour. Now, it becomes theirs, that's true, but it doesn't start that way. I want to draw an analogy here. Um... Let's say uh, somebody comes to that carpenter and uh, they, the, the original carpenter says, you know what, you're going to be doing a lot of carpentry with me. I have all my tools. You're going to need some tools. So I'm going to buy you a $250 uh, circular saw. I'm going to get you a, a drill and an impact, another 350 bucks. 
Maybe you'll need a oscillating multi-purpose power tool, another 150, oh, jigsaw 200. So I'll give you, oh, you know, you're going to need a table saw, a chop saw, uh, some stands, some clamps, uh, some squares. Um, you're going to need a lot of things. So here's $2,500 worth of tools, which will allow you to do this trade. Now, that's a lot, right? And that's not entirely unreasonable for that person to supply that, at which point they begin working with those tools. Now, what would we say if this new hire said, wow, yeah, thanks, that's really cool. I like all these. I could totally be a carpenter somewhere else. And he throws them all into his truck and he drives off quitting. Boy, that's not okay. That's theft, right? Like those weren't, I mean, they kind of became his tools. That's true. And he was supposed to use them and all that, but he was supposed to use them for his employer. That's not fair that the original carpenter gave him all that stuff and then he just drove off and started his own carpentry company with those tools. Boy, that's not okay. In fact, that would be very much illegal. That's theft. So what non-competes are trying to do is to avoid this in the human capital, not just the physical capital level. Because let's say that new hire trains for 50 hours with that skilled carpenter. Well, 50 hours given up by that guy at 50 bucks an hour, that's still $2,500 of value that the original carpenter really paid to invest into this person. And although they're not physical tools, they're nonetheless tools. It's a type of human capital that's been given to them. So they kind of pay that off as they work for the carpenter because it's a big upfront cost but then eventually having a skilled laborer which works for them for say 35 an hour is going to give them a return on those lost 50 hours where they're training the new guy or undoing all of his mistakes and buying new stuff that that he cut wrong etc so non-competes i think are actually a useful tool and if they didn't exist people would be very apprehensive about supplying human capital to others. And just like if we got rid of the law that said that you can't just steal all your tools from the employer, like if that type of regulatory environment existed, people would be very apprehensive about letting anybody use or have any tools. And I don't think that the economy would thrive. So I support non-compete agreements and I want them to be clear, well-explained, and I want people to judge whether or not they want to be under them. So if two organizations both offer the same wages, the same everything, but one offers the flexibility of being able to compete and move to another firm at any point, well, then more people are going to want to go there. And maybe they, uh, they change their compensation package a little bit to to kind of afford being able to offer that flexibility? Well, okay, they're specializing in absorbing a particular type of labor, one that might be a little bit more transient. And I want a thousand flowers to bloom. I want groups that want fixed workers for long periods of time and to invest crazy amounts of human capital into them. And I want some which are able to very quickly provide training and to absorb people into the labor force. And having non-competes as a, as a real legal thing is a tool that will allow both of these things to be able to flourish. So 
I support them. I don't think they're anti-free market because I think it's um, respecting a type of property that's not necessarily physical, but does cost real money and does create real value. So although they can be abused and they're not right in every situation, I, I support their existence. All right. Next question. Do you think there's a categorical difference between canceling and firing somebody versus a Catholic school slash parish firing somebody for not living in accord to Catholic doctrine? Indeed, I do think there is a difference here. So it's fair to cancel or fire somebody if they break the standards of, say, um, a certain society. So if the blue-haired, woke liberals of America Club finds out that one of their members is secretly praying a rosary in between mouthfuls of raw meat as they chisel a bust of Ronald Reagan, well then, yeah, they're probably going to fire him because he's not being honest about who he is. He's not a wild, blue-haired, uh, woke liberal. Instead, he is this uh, Ronald Reagan chiseler. So they would be perfectly justified in excluding them, him from this group. And likewise, if Catholic schools find out that one of their teachers is performing cats, cats on ice, um, well, they may investigate to find out that this teacher lives a fabulously gay lifestyle in yet more ways. And they might want to exclude this type of person from their Catholic school. And that, too, is fair. So if it's going to be these private institutions which expect certain things of their members, then I think that they can set the rules for who gets included and excluded. The real question comes when it hits society writ large. Um, here, I think Plato would tell us that we need to be better than ourselves as a state, and that if we do have destructive people, well, then we need to conquer them. And although that's not the ideal, the ideal is actually to persuade them, to actually come to them and make our enemies into friends. Sometimes the medicine of, um, of law needs to be something that the state uses. So what, would that would, what that would look like might be um, saying that it's illegal to push woke propaganda because it violates the establishment uh, um, clause whereby the state cannot establish a religion. This seems to be a set of moral precepts. And uh, it looks a lot like a religion, so therefore we cannot have the public funding of woke education at any level. That would be using a law, which is actually already in the books, to get rid of something which is harmful to society writ large. And I don't think that that's um, analogous to excluding somebody from a private group, because what we're trying to do here is bring about a type of justice in the whole. Whereas in the society... Well, it's more about um, simply having freedom of association amongst individuals. And I think that's different in kind. So freedom of association amongst individuals, I think, needs to be retained. And it's reasonable to exclude people if they don't meet your common purpose or have your common love. But in society in general, we're not looking principally at that as much as we're principally pointing towards justice. And justice implies, as we learn from Plato, wisdom. And wisdom relates to understanding the divinely revealed law, right? And that's how Plato sees the reason for calling one group the better and the other the inferior. He sees it as 
uh, wisdom connecting us to what is true. And then in light of this, using courage and temperance, um, powers of the will to moderate the passions. So that's why he believes that the best ought to conquer the mob because the mob is analogous to the passions. So we should conquer the mobs when we just hear people crying out that they want um, wild sexual uh, promiscuity, etc. That's just the cry of the mob. That is the cry of the passions. So that needs to be conquered by the power of reason, by the power of will. That was a lot of words I said. I hope that answers the question. So yeah, I think there's a difference between excluding somebody from a private group, saying you can't associate with us because we are this type of people, and canceling people publicly because that publicness means that we uh, we shouldn't just go based on vote. We ought not base uh, our decisions based only on who's the loudest, but instead on who's in best conformity to the divine law. And even even good old Plato agrees. Oh, no, I use the example of, say, a gay teacher at a Catholic school. Um, Plato, by book two, actually makes an argument against homosexuality, which a lot of people paint the Greeks as if they were... Um, uh, very much pro-homosexuality, but no, no, Plato uses reason to say that this is not something that would be um, divinely ordained, and it's not something that we can say is normal, natural, or in, align- or in alignment with the uh, natural law. Well, send in your questions if you have them. Um, appreciate you guys spending the time to listen. We went through a lot of primary source stuff I do want to retain my title as the podcast with the greatest amount of primary source quotes, the most obnoxiously long in any case. Um, Let's see. We got Father Sirico coming very, very soon. So that should be the next episode. Um, I hope you guys are looking forward to that one. So send in your questions to me, any comments, keep sharing the show. If you ever want to email me, it's thegordianot101 at gmail.com. God bless.